0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. I just want to share a message with you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Summers are a ton of fun in Ames because we get a lot of visitors in Ames. Uh, Most of the, a lot of the college students leave our church, which is super sad, um, but the core remains, and the core of our church come and go with vacations, and trips, and hosting family, and whatnot. The summer is, feels like it flies by in Ames, but there's a unique season that we're stepping into right now as we look towards the fall that I want to make sure that our our hearts are open to what the Lord wants to do. I believe there is a an opportunity, a divine opportunity for us to... Uh, be attuned to the rhythms of our city, and sense the, just the hand of the Lord on the opportunities that, that fall before us uh, these coming next two months or so. There's just a, opportunities that abound in, ter- in terms of divine appointments, in terms of lifetime, lifetimes of relationships that descend upon our city come August and September. And so this message may sound like it's just for the core of our church, and it is, this is a rallying call for the core of our church, but if you're visiting with us, I pray that you're blessed, that the Lord challenges you for your life uh, to count, for your life to matter in the light of eternity. But this is, in a sense, a, a family message this morning from First Corinthians chapter 3, uh, for us to sense the timing of the Lord in where he's positioned us, right here in Ames, Iowa, in, cent- in central Iowa. The Lord has placed us here with a purpose, and um, the title of this message is The House That Jesus Builds, because the Lord is building something, and there's coming a day when the stuff that's of real value will be revealed in the light of eternity, and that which is of little value will be burned up. And I want it to be said of this small church in Ames, Iowa, that we built with the Lord, that we joined with what the Lord was doing, rather than doing our own thing. And then in the light of eternity, it's all burnt up and it counts for nothing. But rather that we would be a people that are so attuned to what Jesus is doing, that we join with him for his glory. And and what 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 we do on this earth actually stands in the light of eternity, It's the house that Jesus builds. Me and my wife bought a house about eight years ago, and it was a house that was built, designed and built by an architect. He was a retired architect. He designed the house, and then he built it himself. In fact, he left us pictures of himself down in the foundation, laying the cinder block foundation himself. White hair, because he was retired, he was just building his house. He built it all himself and recently we were doing an update to the kitchen and or a few years, this is five years ago, we were doing an update to the kitchen and we were going to paint all the cupboards and as so you start getting to the innards of the house, you see truly what it's, what it's made of, you know, and uh, we were getting to the cupboards, we realized that so much of this kitchen was pieced together with mixed materials. It wasn't all the same same sort of wood, it wasn't all the, the same uh, type of plywood or solid wood. It was a mixture of materials. We covered it all in paint, so it didn't matter at the end of the day. (laughs) But as you begin to dig into the makings of a house, you see what it's truly made of. And there's coming this day in the light of eternity when everything will be revealed. And we're going to read this passage this morning when it says, gold, silver, and precious stones along with wood, hay, and stubble will all be sent through the fires of eternity. And only that which matters will, will stand, will last, and the rest will be burnt up. I just want it to be said of this house, that, that we're not a house of mixed materials, but rather we are a house that's purified, purely can present ourselves before the Lord. So, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants of the household of faith in Ames, Iowa, Life Point Church. Well done. That's my prayer that this would be called the house that Jesus builds. So when I use that phrase, a house that Jesus builds, I'm not talking about a physical structure. You see, the Lord is taking us somewhere. It's not to build buildings, to build big churches with recognizable names. No, he's building for himself a people. And we see it as the common thread through Scripture from beginning to end. In the very beginning, back in the garden, you get a glimpse of our purpose. It's to be with the Lord. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning. God's purpose for humanity, what sets us apart from the rest of creation, is that we can actually be in relationship, intimate relationship, walking with the Lord. That was his purpose in the very beginning. Obviously, that was was ruined by our own uh, willful rebellion and the curse that ensued. As you look throughout the redemptive story and even fast forward towards our redemptive future, you see in Revelation chapter 21, it says the dwelling place of God is with man. So where he's taking us looks a lot like the garden, but even better. He was with man at the beginning. That was broken by the curse, by our own sinful rebellion. Jesus has been in the work of restoring What was ruined by sin. So, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That is a promise. It's not one found oftentimes on refrigerators, but he will be with his people. It's a promise. You can count on it. That's what God is building. He is building for himself a people that he dwells with, that he dwells amongst and with. And it is a people, it's a collective of people. So I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because Paul feels inclined to exhort the people in Corinth regarding their very purpose as a church because they had been kind of they'd fallen into factions and divisions and jockeying for position and pride and egos, all those things that oftentimes are found in churches. They had fallen into those traps in Corinth, and so he he speaks correction to them. And I would say out of all Paul's letters, his his corrections to the Corinthians are the strongest. There's something upon this church, I believe, of both divine destiny, but also extreme difficulty that Paul feels the unction of the Lord to, to correct in a number of issues, and this is one of them. They've fallen into factions and divisions, So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, or household of faith, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. See, Paul ministered in Corinth for a year and a half. So he was feeding them the milk. They encountered the Lord, you know, these mostly non-Jewish people encountering Jesus for themselves and he fed them the milk of the gospel. The first things. But he said, they're still not ready for, for the meat, the solid meat. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Think of the, the high calling that Paul puts upon them. You're just acting like a human again. Like, what are you doing? You're made for more than this. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It's like, I'm, I'm sorry, Paul, yes, I, I am. I'm just being human again. We're called for something higher. So the Lord is building for himself a people, a house. He's fashioning us together to be a people of his presence. And those people are a spiritual people. They're not a people that are are defined in the flesh, but rather are a spiritual people. That's number one. They're a spiritual people. He says they are of the flesh, and really in the original Greek, what he what he said was they are dominated by the flesh. Obviously, we won't be fully released from the, the, the real battle with the flesh until we, until we go on into eternity. But we are that, that's not what defines us is our life in the flesh. What defines us is our life in the spirit. He says, he says in Galatians chapter five, walk in the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what, what our inheritance is, What our daily opportunity is, is to walk in the Spirit. What he had just got done saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 was what we receive in Christ. We receive the mind of Christ. So being a spiritual people is being a people that are mindful of the Spirit, that are attentive to the Spirit, and not dominated by the flesh. These were believers that had fallen into being dominated by their old ways, the old ways of the flesh. That's not who we are anymore. We're not called to be dominated by the flesh. We've been freed by, from that. We have been set free in Christ to be a spiritual people. And we, when I talk about being a spiritual people, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about filling your life with spiritual jargon nor am I talking about some sort of hyper-spiritualization of everything. I'm talking about seeing the spiritual importance and and, uh, realities all around us. True spirituality is uber-practical. True spiritual living is uh, recognizable by the people around us. That form of religious spirituality is very off-putting. It distances us from any sort of real impact on the people around us. But a spiritual life is is marked by something otherworldly that makes the people around you begin to scratch their heads. There's something about this person that I want to know more about because they're spiritual people. So if if we're dominated by the flesh, be it what, what it was for the Corinthians, it was a whole slew of things. It was jealousy and division and strife and fighting. And there was lawsuits in this church. I mean, it was just a mess. There was gross sexual immorality in this church. So they were dominated by the flesh. But the, the cure for us, if we're dominated by the flesh, is to go back to the first things. It's, it's what Jesus called the church in Ephesus, to in the book of Revelation. He says, look how far you've fallen. You've fallen away from your first love. Repent and go back to those first things. Go back and do those things you did, the works you did at first. He's not talking about works that lead to salvation. He's talking about those first things of love response, the first works of love response when you first caught a glimpse of your Savior. Go back to those things. Allow your heart to be kindled in love again afresh for Jesus. Then you will be a spiritual people. You will be attuned to the Lord Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday when when Pastor Scott sings your favorite song, but it's throughout your day. You'll be a spiritual people in your coming and your going, and then you can actually reckon the flesh dead The word reckon means consider it dead. You can consider that old you dead left there at the cross. And I would say most mornings, I know it is for me, the old Drew tries to rear its face. And you say, I consider it dead at the cross. It was taken care of there at the cross. And you then begin to live this life immersed in the spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, Spiritual people make an impact then in our, in our city, in our world. J. Oswald Sa- Sanders said this, Spirituality is not easy to define, but you can tell when it's present. It is the fragrance of the garden of the Lord, the power to change the atmosphere around you, the influence that makes Christ real to others. So spiritual people are these people that the Lord is building for himself. People who have their minds on the things of the Spirit. And I've just noticed that even in my own witness in this city, much of my impact is not in the words that I say. I would say that. And it's, me and my wife have great relationships with all of our neighbors around, around the neighborhood. We've built relationships. And most of our testimony and our witness with them, 90% of it, is not so much in our words preaching at them. It's in our life as spiritual people that makes them curious of the things of God, that makes them drawn to the life that's inside of us, makes them drawn to the kingdom that we live immersed in. That's why even just yesterday I went to Walmart and this lady who I built a relationship with came up to me and started giving me her prayer requests. Not because she even knows I'm a pastor. In fact, she does not know I'm a pastor. But simply living a lifestyle immersed in the Spirit, being mindful of the spiritual reality all around us. We are spiritual people. We're not dominated by the flesh. Let's keep reading verse five. What then is Apollos? Apollos was this, I'll answer Paul's question. Paul, Apollos was this uh, well-educated Jew that was very influential in the early church. And, um, and it didn't seem like Paul and Apollos ever teamed up together per se, But oftentimes they were overlapping in their ministry across the Roman Empire. And so Paul did affirm Apollos' ministry. Um, So what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth or God who gives the increase. He who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is building for himself a people. He says it right there. We are God's building. This was this predated the idea of formal church buildings like we know today. So we know he's not talking about a building campaign here for the church in Corinth. He's talking about a people that God is building. He's forming a people, fashioning a people that together, not singularly, not individually, but, to, but collectively that look like Jesus. And when people walk into their midst, they know that Jesus is there. And so there is a, there's a, a banner over these few verses that marks these people. And it's that these people are unified. They're a spiritual people, but they're a unified people. You see how Paul has no problem downplaying his influence and in accentuating Apollos. They're on equal footing. They are one. He's, he's recognized. He's matured in the Lord enough to know that sometimes he's sowing seeds, sometimes he's watering. Sometimes he gets the privilege of harvesting. He knows the Lord's building something. He's just joining with what the Lord is doing. But in Paul's mind, he is unified with Apollos, and he's unified with the church in Corinth. The church, the house that Jesus is building, is a unified people. One of the most divisive things people can do is begin to rally around a singular person. And that's been toxic in our modern age of celebrity Christianity to rally around a person or a personality. The Jesus Church rallies around one. His name is King Jesus. Jesus is the head. And Paul goes on later in 1 Corinthians 12 to to give them even greater emphasis on this, that we need to actually be intentional about accentuating the dishonorable parts of the body, the parts that maybe don't get as much attention, and downplaying these places The platforms and the stages and the upfront things. I'm contending for that to be a reality in our church family. That we would do away with the the stages and the platforms and see a church that's unified, that's one in Christ. Where Jesus truly is the head. A unified people. I remember many years ago, one of the most toxic things in a church is a church that begins to divide into factions and into parties and falls into politics. But many years ago, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> worked for a pastor, and one day he walked into my office and was working in college ministry, and, and he let me into a bunch of drama that had begun to, to unfold, unbeknownst to me, began to unfold in the church. He let me in on all this, and he said, Drew, so whose side are you on? And I was blown away that he put me in that position whose side am I on I said I'm, I'm not on anybody's side I'm going to keep loving college students loving and discipling college students. that's what I am going. and that's what I did there, there were no sides in my mind for me to pick the the results of that were tragic many people that, that left that church and it was it was tragic because I I realized that once people began to pick sides that was not going to end well once people begin to divide into certain factions, rather than this spirit of humility, which is spiritual, these are spiritual, this, the, the, the heart of a spiritual person is, is humble enough to set aside our disagreements or at least come to terms amongst, uh, about our disagreements and look civilly into one another's eyes with love and not even begin to move forward about what the next step is until our hearts actually feel love towards that person. And that's the spirit of unity. We don't have unity as a value of this church because I don't think, value, or I don't think unity should be set as a target. Unity is this byproduct of keeping Jesus as the head. This, this banner of Jesus over this church family. And the byproduct of that, the fruit of that will be unity. A unified people rally around the king. Around any church stream, it can be very tempting to kind of bolster ourselves and what our distinctives are and even rally around what our distinctives are. You know, I'm talking about doctrines. But I've really decided not to do that. We, can't, we keep Jesus as the main thing, keep loving him, and obviously our theology, what we believe about Jesus and how we read scripture will manifest itself. It will come out. I can't help that, and I can't apologize about that. But we don't wear our distinctives, our doctrinal distinctives as a badge of of honor. As the thing that pits us against another church. No, the banner over this church family is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is king and he is head. It's not secondary issues that we're gonna rally around. It's not our distinctives. We're gonna rally around Jesus. And I believe that's what Paul was calling them to. He's saying God is building something. He's building a unified people. And he says something that you never hear in the Western modern church. It's God who gives growth. Some plant, some water, it's God who gives growth. We love to dial everything down to some formula, some method, and then we bolster certain individuals to say they are the ones who grew a church. And trust me, I'm in enough pastoral circles to hear it ad nauseum. (laughs) This guy grew this church. I didn't know that humans grow churches. I didn't know that humans save souls. That's the work of our Savior. That's the work of the Spirit. Those are the things of the Holy Spirit to transform lives, to, to bring about the miracle of rebirth, and then to, to set aside a people for Himself. Jesus is building something, it's God's building. Verse 10. So we're spiritual people, a unified people. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation as someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now I want to make clear that Jesus is building a house, but we are called to be co-laborers with him. We are called to do something with them. And that's what he's getting into right now. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. And I pray right now that the, the fear of the Lord rests in this place, that there is coming a day when our works will be exposed. They will be manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. May this be a reality in our hearts. This is not theory. This is not just a doctrinal statement. This is a, like a promise of what is to come. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, you will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So I'm not talking about questioning your assurance of salvation. I'm talking about giving your life now in Christ to something that truly matters. Giving your life for things that truly matter in the light of eternity, because there will come a day when our works will be exposed, they will be disclosed before all of eternity. So this people, this house that Jesus is building is is made of a spiritual people, a unified people. And thirdly, it's a people joining with what Jesus is doing. They don't have their own agenda. They're joining with what the Lord is doing. They're building with precious stones, gold, and silver. Paul uses, and this is not by accident, this is not um, speculation on my part, this is where he's headed and we'll read it in just a moment. He's using the imagery of God's temple to point us to the things that really matter in the presence of God. And you think of much of the, the details, the minutiae of, of what seems like minutia in the Old Testament. It's pointing us towards God's grander purposes of setting aside a people of his presence. So as you're struggling through Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers, the, the level of detail there is pointing us towards God's intent, his resolute, unwavering intentions amongst us to dwell with his people. And so with that, he goes to great length to say, use in, in my presence, use gold, use silver. On the, the priestly garments, put these stones upon his vestments. I want to point you towards certain things that will last in light of eternity. And obviously, he's not talking about physical things. He's pointing us. He's building. He's he's so patient to write out this story in a way that slowly brings us along. Obviously, the veil was torn in the Holy of Holies when Jesus breathed his last breath and said, it is finished. But he's pointing us towards something. And in his presence, there will be certain things that matter and certain things that don't. The wood hay and the stubble, it will be, burnt, it'll be burned up. When we build in our own pride and our own ego, when we embrace our own agenda and try to put God's name on it, when we do our thing and then post-date ask God to bless it, those things will be burnt up. And only that which is built in Jesus joining with what he is doing, doing will last. The stuff that will last is the stuff that we build with the Lord. I remember a mentor a number of years ago challenging me to ask this question every single morning. He said, Drew, ask this question. Lord, what's your assignment for me today? What assignment do you have for me today? That transformed my day-to-day life in terms of my singular focus on joining with what the Lord is doing. How easy is that to to present in a relational way that that question to the Lord? What's your assignment for me today? What I began to do is it gave me an invitation to the Lord to say, highlight a person in some way, maybe highlight a, a love that I'm supposed to demonstrate to my wife. That's what he would do. He'd bring my wife to my mind and I'd begin to then make that my assignment for that day. I'm going to demonstrate the love of the Lord to my wife or one of my kids, a way I can encourage them or somebody in this church family. Yes, some days I'm reaching out to you because the Lord has put you on my heart. He's given me an assignment because I want to join with what the Lord is doing. I don't want to build my own thing. I want us to be a people joining with what the Lord is doing. It's not the stuff that we do in our own strength. We see this pattern in the very early days of the church. Jesus gave them a mission to reach the world. And in our kind of um, ambitious, driven, human uh, tendencies, we would have taken that commission, Matthew 28 or Acts chapter 1, we're going to reach the world for Jesus and we would have left the, the very furnace or the, the, the power plant of that mission in the dust. The fuel of that mission is meant to be the presence of God. So He says, don't, don't go on to the mission until you first wait in Jerusalem. I want to give you the promise of the Father. I want to give you this power from on high. So we see that pattern as they wait in Jerusalem. They've, they've got this mission. And I'm sure Peter, you know, in his... Just driven self. He was just rearing to go. He wanted to get out of that upper room, that stuffy upper room with the 119 other stinky people and get out into the streets and reach the reach the people. Thank God he didn't. There was a grace that came upon them to wait in unity, to become of one accord, and the presence of God came. Filled them with power. That was meant to be the fuel of the church. We don't want to get ahead of God. So are we doing our own thing? Are we joining what God is doing? The Lord gave us a mission, but he also gave us a command. And Pastor Riley last week did a phenomenal job talking about the first and greatest commandment. That first and greatest commandment is meant to be the the fuel and the, the driver to the Great Commission. The greatest commandment fuels the Great Commission. So let us not abort the command because of the commission. Let us love the Lord, host his presence well, and from that place join with what the Lord is doing. I just want to read the rest of this chapter because it's just so good. I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Scott Ford. Actually, I'll invite the entire worship team. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So this is where he's, where he's been headed this entire time. Bringing them to their purpose. You are God's temple. You're God's building, but more specifically, you're God's temple. You're meant to be the people of God that host the holy of holies. God himself. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And specifically, he's talking about those that cause division those that cause strife. So there's a judgment for those that cause that sort of prideful division. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. In Christ, there's all of a sudden this equal playing field. We're all ushered into this place where the kingdom is yours. That's not something that puts you up on a pedestal ahead of others. In fact, it's the opposite. It puts us onto this equal playing uh, field with, with all of God's people. Children of God. The Lord is building for himself a house of people. His presence dwells so beautiful, beautifully. Those people are spiritual people, they're unified people, they're people that are joining with him. But there is a natural consequence of these people that are set apart for him. And he, he talks about that here in verses 18 through 20. They will be called foolish. There will be this misunderstanding about these people that some just will not understand. They won't follow the methods or the ways of this world because our our ways are not from this world. Instead, there, there will be this foolishness about them in the eyes of some. And I just want to tell you that's okay with me. I've just learned to embrace that the fact that some people may misunderstand you in Christ. It's the way of Jesus himself. Just survey the gospels in Jesus' ministry. How often did people question his ways when he said he's going to feed the 5,000? They're like, Jesus, don't you know, this would, this would take a year's wages to feed these people the ways of Jesus just seem so foolish there is this child like trust in the ways of the father because he's joining with what the father is doing he's not doing his own thing it just looks foolish in the eyes of the world and the kids come up onto Jesus' lap the disciples think it's foolishness the Pharisees think it's foolishness but Jesus says this is my way let them come and the quote unquote sinful woman comes and breaks the alabaster jar at Jesus' feet. It's Judas and I'm sure other disciples that thought it was a waste because this sort of extravagant worship just did not register in their minds. That is the way of Christ. That's the way of a Jesus people. There'll be a foolishness about him and you don't have to try to be foolish. I'm not t- telling you to be crazy for crazy's sake and I know some of you, you're crazy. Just saying, love him. Don't care what people think. Just get over yourself. Stop bowing to every opinion of of every person. I've seen it enough in ministering to college students. There's this this pattern that happens as as young people encounter Jesus. he, He wrecks their life, he wins their hearts. They begin to sense a divine purpose upon their lives whether it be in the marketplace, in in vocational ministry or missions, that their family just cannot understand. And so I see it pretty much every single year, this pattern of young people encountering the Lord and them having to work through then the tensions of bringing their families along in the journey, of explaining with grace, this is the way I'm going now that I'm following Jesus. This is my new way of life. My priorities are different now. My values are different now. I know for the individuals that signed up for Jesus School, many have had to wrestle through that very thing. In just a couple weeks, we're launching a school called Jesus School. to you cover your prayers, the premise being giving a year to sit at the feet of Jesus until your heart burns the things that his heart burns for. But for so many, it does not make sense. You can devote a year of your life to worship and to prayer and growing in the word. Foolishness, but it's the way of a Jesus people, this house that Jesus builds. This has been the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.